Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. Happy Ides of March, both of you. Thank you. Evan, are you and I going to uh, stab Brad in the back, or are we not going to have any fun in this episode? We'll see where it takes us. That's always an option. Folks, welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Uh, we're here to talk to you about all things Detroit Red Wings hockey. We have a very special roundtable episode uh, for you. Uh, the world of the NHL, prospects, and everything in between. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco. And I'm Evan. Thank you both for cementing me as the biggest dweeb on this podcast for uh, not understanding what I was saying at the beginning. I appreciate that. It's good to put me in my place every once in a while. St. Patrick's Day on Friday. Is it really that fat? Oh my goodness, we're already That's there. how you know you're an adult because yeah. like you don't have any concept of that anymore. You Hold want- on. Ides of March, St. Patrick's Day. This is the perfect summation of you two. It honestly really is. <laughs> I've got bo- I got boys night on Friday night for St. Pa- well, not for St. Patrick's Day. Once again, it just turned out to be St. Patrick's Day. Um, so I'll see you guys like probably probably Wednesday the next week. I'll probably miss Sunday because I'll be so hungover. Because I'm an adult. Brad, is it, <laughs> is it uh, telling to you at all that we've never once been invited to one of his boys' days or boys' nights? Well, oh, I've, I've been, known I've... you since I was five, so yeah. uh, that's part of the criteria. Evan, you should have waited. I was going to say I've been to all of them just to see. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's on me. We can edit this. <laughs> we can edit that in. <laughs> on this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, we are going to be recapping Detroit's thrilling game against the Nashville Predators and approximately 30 seconds later talking about uh, something else. Uh, Alex Chason made his little moment in Red Wings history. Yes, we are at the part of the season where we are talking about Alex Chason as the biggest story on the Red Wings. That's not a slight on Alex. He's been great, but that's just what this, um, when you sell at the deadline, this is what happens. Uh, some small notes about the Detroit Red Wings players like Will Linder, some notes on them, Casper, uh, uh, some things we forgot to uh, mention last episode, but most importantly, the Red Wings roundtable, the return of Max Boltman and Prashanth Iyer to join us as we do a full assessment on uh, Steve Eisman's trade deadline, a look back at uh, the the kind of buying spree that happened last free agency and how that compares to the selling that happened at the trade deadline and where the rebuild is. Is this what needs to be happening? Is is Eisenman, you know, painted into a corner? Uh, a lot of really, I think, fair and honest questions and really, really good discussion after happened. We're really excited for you guys to listen to this. Uh, after that, we'll have a couple small notes uh, about the league, some uh, outcomes from the GM meetings and uh, some, well, the sale of the senators is ongoing and, and We'll, we'll talk about that very briefly, and then we'll get into overtime. Before all that, I uh, do want to mention, uh, this podcast is supported, uh, propped up, run, generated, all of that by our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash podcast. If you want to support the show, it allows us to do a lot of really cool things. Pretty much everything that we do is because of our patrons. They get benefits like access to our WWP Discord they get automatically entered into all giveaways, uh, including two giveaway, or we're giving away two tickets to every Red Wings home game this season, and the vast majority of them are going directly to patrons. Additionally, uh, you get access to our Patreon-exclusive overtime episodes, which record right after these, where uh, you get to hear things like our bloopers as we attempt to start the episode like five separate times. Uh, all of that and more 
Um, it really, really helps us do, um, again, not just hosting the show, but our fundraising for the Jamie Daniels Foundation and uh, some exciting news that's coming up in the next month or so that we've been working on for a little while. So uh, stay tuned for more on that. And that's all because of our lovely, lovely patrons. So thank you all so much. Patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. If you want to support. Okay. Uh, the Red Wings faced off against the Nashville Nashville Predators on Tuesday night in Nashville. And man, was that ever a game between two teams who are not poised to make the playoffs? Nashville's making a run. They're, a little bit. They're making it interesting. Nashville's doing what I think the most pie-in-the-sky Red Wings fans hope Detroit would do, which is sell and still make it. Like, how do you get rid of Ekholm and still make a push? I guess it's the West, so it's interesting. But the game itself was... Quite the opposite. I watched that entire game. I was joking around uh, with you guys before saying that I had to send a tweet about how there was nothing tweet worthy towards the end of the second period, just so everybody knew I was like, was your pulse, watching. That was your pulse check. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Proof of life. I mean, I am indeed covering this game. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I remember exactly, exactly six plays from the game and five of them came in the final two and a half minutes of the game. The, I am not even saying this because, you know, there are friends at Bally Sports Detroit the highlight of the game was legitimately having Ken and Mick back in the booth after a run of national games and having them both the banter between them. They were on top form. It was hysterical. And that was all that happened. Like legitimately, that was all that happened. Alex Chason scored with yeah, two and a half ish minutes left in the game on the power play. And that made it his third straight game with a power play goal. And according to our uh, resident stat uh, guru, Prashant Iyer, uh, that he became the seventh Red Wing to score a power play goal in three straight games in the salary cap era, uh, joining Larkin, Franzen, Datsuk, Holmstrom, Zetterberg, and Matthew Schneider. Larkin actually did it earlier this year. So, um, and that's it. That's the only thing that happened. The Red Wings lost 2-1 in regulation. We talk about it in the roundtable, but if you want to know from a fan perspective, don't even consider the GM, don't even consider you know how the team feels. From a fan perspective, why? You maybe put your foot on the gas a little bit sooner before the optimal time. How many games like that can you take a season? It was funny because that was one of those deceiving games because all the analytics, stats, shots on goal, whatever you want to take, heavily favored the Red Wings that game, and w- which is a good thing. Because again, let's not forget a lot of what happened that game was by design by the Red Wings. That is very much what they have been trying to do a lot of this year. Before the chase on goal, I don't know if they had a shot from the home plate area. And if they did, I don't remember it. Like it was just a sea of point shots and, you know, uh, cycling around the outside and not a lot. Even the two national goals. One was like the first goal is okay. Pretty good saucer pass to a guy who tipped in front. And then the second goal is a point shot that was going five feet wide. That buddy had a really nice tip in it. Even that was a nothing play that just happened to turn into a goal. It wasn't even like a Broadway flu game where they were complete duds. It was just one of those games where in theory a hockey game was played and yeah. Keep, Someone had to win. So, yeah. <laughs> it's how it felt. They're like, oh, there's no ties, I guess. And yeah. yeah. Nashville tripped and fell into a W. Congrats. I'm glad it made it more interesting for them. Uh, the Red Wings upcoming before next episode have a matchup uh, on Saturday afternoon, a matinee against the Colorado Avalanche. Oh boy who are gearing up for the playoffs. That's a win. Oh, you think so? Yep. Okay. Not Lobster Domus has spoken. 
The Red Wings are currently sitting, I believe it's still 10 or 11 spots back. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 spots back uh, in the draft lottery standing. So they're still technically in Connor Bedard territory, but they are working within like... Top 11 have a chance at them, right? Yes, because you can move up 10 spots. Yeah. You can still win the lottery otherwise, but you just can't get into first overall. Uh, if you're outside of that top 11. So Detroit. So you're saying there's a chance. There is technically a chance. And Detroit essentially is just hoping, if, for those of you who are hoping for as low of a standings result as possible at this point, or as high of a lottery standings result, uh, the two games against St. Louis who are right behind Detroit are going to be pretty influential. And you're hoping that Vancouver's run of form, they've won five straight, I believe, uh, is going to pull them within range as well. They're uh, neck and neck with St. Louis. But beyond that, like, I don't know that Arizona, who's eight points back with, and Detroit has a, a game in hand on them. Like I, I just don't know that Detroit is going to sink that far. And you never know, Ottawa or Washington or even Buffalo could could move Detroit up. We can't rule out Buffalo doing Buffalo things. No. The Atlantic teams were making things interesting. Like Ottawa, what's with Ottawa? You're going to dunk on, you're going to absolutely demolish. Like they sunned Detroit. Like they they dunked on Detroit they jumped over him, grabbed their head. They shoved us in dirt. A hundred percent. For 48 straight hours, two straight games, and then you're going to go and lose to Chicago and just drop these games against Van- like Vancouver and Cal. Like, what are you doing? I'm just... This remember, is the remember, winter of Pierre. I will not listen to all this dis- besmirching <laughs> of his great name. Yeah, I, I hate to besmirch Pierre Dorian, but... It is kind of disappointing. Like you, you almost hope from an Atlantic perspective that one of these teams, like Ottawa or Buffalo, goes and makes it interesting. But they all seem to have done what the Red Wings did and just kind of faltered. Well, there's only a handful of teams in the NHL that have a tougher remaining schedule. Uh, Buffalo and Ottawa are two of them. <laughs> the Atlantic is so messed up, man. Anyhow, that's where the Red Wings are. That's their upcoming game before next episode. We'll obviously be back with you on Sunday. Uh, some other very, very quick notes. Uh, Marco Casper, who we talked about last episode, uh, was voted Austrian Ice Hockey Player of the Year by, I believe it's Powerplay Magazine. Um, so, you know, Casper, obviously one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent Austrian uh, hockey player, uh, hockey players out there, uh, wins that award. In third place, prospect who we'll be talking about, David Reinbacher. Yep, they narrowly edged out Thomas Vanek, who's been retired for three years. <laughs> hey, man, we're working with what we, what we got. <laughs> and uh, last episode, we had a long conversation about what are the Red Wings going to do on the right side. And Evan, you and I were joking just before that we often remember things for the show, like on the drive home. Yes, all the time. And as I was editing, I was like, we gave no airtime. Even though we talked about it off air, on air, we gave almost no airtime to the fact that William Melinder does like to play on the right side, and I believe is doing so right now uh, for Rogla in the playoffs. Um, Shoots left, can or likes to even play on the right side, and that is worth noting. That could be a solution for the Red Wings long term. Two things to consider there. Eisman doesn't like doing that, and he doesn't like doing that because it's not inherently easy to do. Like, it's... I don't want to say it's not ideal. Some players can... The way they play the game, they can get around it, and you... Like that's genuinely where they're better. Um, but it's not, you know, not typically what happens. And it's it's pretty atypical where a player is better on that side as compared to their strong hand in my mind. Yeah, there's almost no circumstances where a player would be better. If they can be as good on their offside, that is a hugely impressive feat. Um, 
without getting into the details of, you know, a body position when trying to break out against four checkers and stick position in terms of uh, certain scenarios out there, it is very advantageous to be on your strong side there, but it can be done. It has been done. TJ Brody's made a career out of it. Um, so if Willinder can do it and, and we get Willie Wally on the right side, so be it. <laughs> Willie Wally? Willie Wally. How long were you sitting on that? I thought I brought it up before. Has he said that before? I don't know. That's the first I think I've heard of it. Huh. I'll, I'll allow it. That, but that, it that would have been in the chamber for like, since we drafted him. <laughs> okay. Willie Wally. I... And it, it, that's the thing. It could work, but, um. I'm just saying at this level in his development, it don't put a hard projection on that. When you make the transition to the NHL level, a lot of things that worked in junior or worked in other leagues, they get washed away. Funny enough, our prospect profile yeah, today. <laughs> things, that, things that work in junior but might not work in the NHL. Prospect profile coming soon. Uh, okay. Uh, why don't we jump into our conversation with uh, Max Boltman of The Athletic Detroit and Prashanth Iyer, a good friend of the Winged Wheel podcast. Uh, where we do another rendition of our Red Red Wings roundtable. We talk about the trade deadline, the Iser plan, uh, what's going to come up for the Red Wings this offseason, and plenty more. Without further ado, enjoy this discussion. All right, at the risk of uh, destroying all of our friendships, I did pester you both enough to finally, uh, post-trade deadline, uh, get us together for another Red Wings roundtable. I think... uh, the folks will really enjoy the conversation that's going to come from this because it's been happening, you know, pre-deadline, through the trade deadline, and and onwards uh, between us. So, uh, folks, for this Red Wings roundtable, please welcome back to the show uh, from the Athletic Detroit, Max Boltman and Prashant Iyer. What's up? Yo. So, um, first off, deadline week day, whatever it might have been, that was uh, pretty unexpected how that unfolded. So, uh, Max, from your perspective, how was it covering all of that? Um, were you prepared and and what were your reactions to basically the, the timeline of everything? Yeah, I think prepared for most of it. The, the obvious one just being the heroic one that happened uh, pretty much out of nowhere. I think by the end of the Ottawa trip, it was pretty clear that they were going to sell. Uh, I think I even put in the story there, like, you know, as they get on the plane, there's going to be some uncomfortable decisions here lingering. And what I didn't maybe plan for was that they would get made seemingly right after they got off the plane. Uh, uh, in the case of Philip Ronick, certainly right after I got off the plane, uh, that one broke while I was getting out of the uh, airport shuttle to my car. And I kid you not, Ryan, I almost left my suitcase on that shuttle as a result Dude, there's uh, the no replacement way. suitcase for the one that <laughs> no. I left behind on that trip. I did get it, but it was a close call. So that one caught me off guard. Everything else I think was pretty much par what you expected. Sunquist moves, Verona moves, Bertuzzi moves. That was what we expected a month ago. We allowed ourselves to, uh, you know, and I think for good reason to, you know, shift course as the team shifted course. But that always was the the big ones. The heroic one is the big the big shift, and I think that's uh, maybe the I don't know I don't know if that one happens. Uh, in the same way, it's possible that the Bertuzzi one could have happened even with like a split in Ottawa. The Heronic one, I wonder if, based on how that went, that went from a potential summer deal to a let's do this right now deal. That's what I wonder. Well, let's let's take a look at that deal first. Uh, Philip Heronic moved. Steve Eisenman said afterwards that he was uh, not really wanting to make that trade at the trade deadline, but felt that the return was strong and didn't want to risk losing it by waiting until the offseason. So getting that kind of return for Philip Hronick from Vancouver, 
Roenick in a fourth in exchange for the Islanders uh, conditional first and a 2023 second round pick uh, from Vancouver. Was that the kind of return that in your mind warranted moving Philip Roenick within the context of who he is as a player right now and the Red Wings rebuild? I mean, I think from my standpoint, you you had to on that sort of a, on that level of return because you're getting a potential unprotected first round pick from the New York Islanders, a team that everyone sort of is just waiting for the wheels to fall off and they're sort of not really sure what's going on. Although at this point they're, they're making a pretty strong push uh, for the playoffs. So maybe, uh, maybe you don't end up with that being unprotected, but that in and of itself, I think was attractive enough to move Philip Peronic, a guy who, up until this year, you were sort of waiting for the bigger breakout for the on-ice metrics. I think the points have been there. The minutes have been there. Um, you know, he's been handed a lot of responsibility, but we hadn't necessarily seen that translate into some of the bigger metrics, um, the more all-encompassing metrics until this season. And so it was sort of a sell-high kind of move, in my opinion. And then when you have the opportunity to get what they got from Vancouver, including a potential unprotected pick, uh, in 2024, I think that was a no-brainer. You have to take that deal. Yeah, one of our uh, subscribers at The Athletic uh, in our trade deadline, kind of who says no mailbag this year, actually uh, suggested something pretty similar to this. It wasn't with Winnipeg. I think it was uh, – or sorry, it wasn't with Vancouver. I think it was with Winnipeg. I'm trying to go back and find that article right now. But they, I think their suggestion was a first, a second, and a 2026 second. And I think I said something like, you know, this is the kind of thing, this is, you know, off the beaten path, but this is the kind of thing the Red Wings would have to think about. Uh, and ends up, that's actually, I think, almost exactly what the Jacob Chikrin deal is. Um, but the, or maybe, maybe he didn't specify that the 2026 or not. I don't know. But, but either way, that the point being, uh, I think that was a, a good recommendation and, and, and what it was going to take. And, and this was that, you know, Heronic, especially for what this pick is going to be, it looks like it's going to be a top 20 pick. I, don't think it's going to get to top 15 at this point. It would take pretty big runs by the Panthers and one other team to um, kick the Islanders down, but it, a good chance of being top 20. That's much more valuable than a, a pick at 28 or 29, even though it might not seem like it. And so I think that's the key. That second's going to be an early second. If you want to trade up, that's a valuable trade chip uh, with, with what could be 37, 38th pick. Um, I, I think it's great value. And I think, Probably the most important thing, and I think Prashant will agree with this, is that you're not going to get put in a bind in a year when you have to decide how much you're going to pay Philip Peronic, who at that point could very well be coming off. If he had stayed in Detroit, I think he almost certainly would be coming off two 50-point seasons as a defenseman that is going to get you, um, by current standards, around six, six and a half million. If you factor in the potential for the cap to go up, that number could be higher. And I don't think you want to be paying that for a second pair defenseman. Um and I think that is one of the big values too, is that you no longer have to make that decision. Um, you know, we, we've talked about ad nauseum, everybody, I think this kicks the can down the road, but I think that's one of the biggest factors is that you will have that flexibility. You gotta, you gotta replace it, but you will have the flexibility. Yeah. And I think Max, to your point, one thing that doesn't get talked about enough with these teams that are in this position is uh, selling on those players, not only high, but early, because oftentimes, at least in recent years up until this deadline, the, the return on what you were selling at the trade deadline was often not that great for those expiring contracts. Teams will flat out come out and tell you, we do not want to pay a premium for expiring contracts. And up until this deadline, we hadn't really seen that. And so 
being savvy enough to recognize that a year from now, your position likely isn't all that different, but now you're in the position of dealing an un, you know, a, a player that's going to require a new contract. Granted, Philip Ronick was going to be an RFA. And so you would have had at least the rights retained to him. But, you know, if you waited a year, you may not have gotten the same level of return or you may have had a smaller market for him in terms of teams projecting what they're going to pay him. Now you're selling on him when you have, when a team knows they're going to have a cost controlled year of 4.4 million for a guy that's putting up 50 points. And hey, if they're, if they're buying high thinking that this is a breakout of what's to come, you know, that's potentially what gets them to give up a little bit more. And so it's having the foresight as a selling GM to make these moves earlier and not necessarily waiting until the very last minute where you may not get as much, particularly with guys who are pending UFAs. And this is something we talked about with Tyler Bertuzzi for years, right? Like he never had a a long-term deal for it to really, uh, you know, but there was always the team control element and and there was the, obviously the Canada border thing, I think complicated it. But what do you get if you trade Tyler Bertuzzi last summer? And and he's coming off a 30-goal, 60-point season. He's got another team control year at a really nice number. If you want to retain half, hey, knock yourself out, retain half, make it even more valuable. They got a, they, I think they got a good return for him. I think it was worthwhile. It, it's a higher return if you do it last summer. Um, I know that's going to lead to something Prashant is going to want to talk about really quick. Um, Ian W is the person who submitted that proposal. He didn't specify a year. He just said a first and two seconds. But uh, Ian, good job. Well, let's talk about Bertuzzi. I don't, I don't think we need to break down the pick like you make like you uh, said, uh, Max. It was a good return, and it was an inevitability that Bertuzzi was going to get moved. So, Prashant, Max alluded to you having some strong feelings about when Bertuzzi was traded in the overall decision to trade him uh, with respect to or in comparison to some of the other moves that Eisman made last offseason. Let us hear it. Yeah, I mean it. It's 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 a really tough spot, and a lot of this is going to sound like it's hindsight. Uh, you know, taking a look at where we're at now and, and, and seeing where the team is and then going back and playing armchair GM and that. But I really do think if you go back to last offseason uh, and you were to project the Red Wings where they were without making any additions. So you're not adding Andrew Kopp. You're not adding Ben Sherratt. You're not adding any of the guys that they ended up bringing in. You know, you're probably looking at a team that's maybe seven, eight, nine points worse than the team that we have projected here. And that team that we have projected here at the beginning of the season, a lot of folks had them somewhere between 82 and 88 points. Uh, I think most of the major outlets and the betting organizations were exactly between 82 and 88 points, which even after spending all that money adding all those guys, you still were about a solid eight points away from being a playoff team because it's looking like the cutoff this year will be around 95, 96 points to squeak in. And it almost always is. Yeah, and it almost always is. And even in some years, Max, we've talked about it. It's You want to basically be airing on the side of being a 100-point team Yeah, if, if you're playing, right? That was last year was 100 yeah. was the bottom. And, yeah. and so we're still talking about a team that even after making all of those additions was six wins or 12 points away from being that 100-point team where potentially you're a little bit more comfortable heading in. And so the, the challenge with making all of those moves – is now you've added a bunch of guys who are a little bit older in their career, and that's not to say that that's a bad thing, but it's are they going to be in a position to still be playing big roles for the money that you paid them when the time comes for you to be that 100-point team? And I think we don't know that right now. I think if I had to bet, I'd probably say you're not going to see that 100-point team when you have Andrew Cop playing top six minutes. 
And that's okay because his contract is still, you know, palatable. It's not terrible. Um, and from an AAV standpoint, particularly if the, if the cap goes up, but that's the kind of deal where you're giving out a lot of money to this guy and he's not likely playing top six minutes for you when this team's a hundred point team. And so if you go back retroactive and say, let's play, you know, armchair GM hindsight 2020, what would have happened if you sold last off season instead of adding all of these guys? What if he sold high on Burt coming off of a terrific year last year? Yes, you still had. Uh, the border issue, which would have limited the, the the market a little bit, but you're selling on a guy that was cost controlled for one year that a team could then have for that entire season. Potentially that drives up his price. You know, you're selling on Jacob Rana, who had just, again, coming off uh, in the off season. Uh, I think he had just set a wings record for the fastest wing to, what was it? 15 or 20 goals in a Red Wings uniform. Uh, and, you know, you have the potential to sell high on one of the best five and five goal scorers. There was maybe an opportunity to explore that. You know, I don't think we'll ever know how much was really done, how much that was pursued. For all I know, it could have been entirely pursued and no one was biting. And, and, and if it is, that is what it is. And you sort of pivot there. But could the Wings have put themselves maybe in a better or more prime spot in the 2023 lottery, considering how loaded this is? I mean, Max, you've talked about it with, with Corey every Friday, you know, on your on the Prospects Athletic NHL show. This is, this is a loaded top 15, really, and giving yourself as many opportunities and potentially multiple picks um, in the first round would have been unbelievable to set yourself up moving forward. So here's my counterpoint, is that if you weren't going to be in the top five, like maybe maybe six, but how different is seven to ten, really? Like if you can move up, and I, I think it would have been really hard to get into that top, that bottom five. Um, now... The injuries that they had, maybe if you're running out a, a, a lineup where there's no Andrew Kopp, there's no David Perron, maybe it does honestly get there with what the injuries were. But I think Larkin, Sider, Wallman, and, and I, I don't know, I think his emergence was probably inevitable. There's some guys, like if you trade Hironic last offseason, I don't know that you get this for him because his ascend, ascension in the early part of this year upped his value. Um, in, in a couple different ways. I think the defensive side, especially that, that he showed, particularly next to Olimata did that. Um, but I, I do wonder, like, is the benefit of if they were in the six or the seven hole as opposed to the 10 hole? I don't know. That'd be my counterpoint. I'm not saying it's a completely, you know, one sided thing. That's just kind of where my hesitation would be. But, it, it, you know, I do think, you know, with, with cop, like, I still think we're seeing more and more what the designs were here with that abdominal surgery that that got up. Like, I still think maybe it's not a second line center. Maybe ultimately on a good team, he's he's on the wing. But because he was right, he was on a top two role on a team that went to the Eastern Conference Finals last year. Granted, only for the last thirty games or twenty games. He had a great pace. Yeah, when he was next to Panarin, like he was a legit. And, and Panarin obviously is, is the driver of the line, but he was making a legit impact in, in a lot of different ways. I'm still an Andrew Cop kind of believer in that way. I, I understand, you know, the, the the term can make people a little queasy, and and obviously the early production. I still think ultimately on the whole, it was a pretty good off season. But I I get the logic too is that if you knew this was where, if you thought this might be where it was headed, did you owe yourself another chance to even if you are going to end up likely picking seventh, let's say. You know, I think that does that triple your odds from tenth to get the number one pick? I don't know. What what is that? Yeah, yeah, it's roughly in that ballpark. I think it's like three times as much. But to your point, that's we're still talking about mere percentage points here, right? Like yeah. five, six percent. Double basically, basically. Yeah. Double. Yeah. Uh 
and and again, if you're making all those moves last off season, there's no way you would have known the kind of injuries Columbus would have sustained this year. Like you weren't expecting Columbus to be a bottom five team. They're the worst team in the league right now. Right. And that's after true. Adding Johnny Gaudreau, you know, Patrick Line, you're thinking that they've got a, a team that, or at least they're hoping they've got a team that's on the fringe of a Walker's part and all likelihood where Detroit is right now, but they, you wouldn't have expected them to be there. And so you may have made those moves and ultimately been, uh, you know, shortchanged by having teams that you weren't expecting to factor in to that bottom five race all of a sudden being there. I mean, you know, we would have expected Arizona to be there. I think most people would have said that. I think most people would have bet on Montreal to still Anaheim. be there. Chicago, Anaheim, San Jose likely to be there. So really Columbus being the only surprise team. But even still, to your point, I don't know that you can get bad enough to be there. Um, you, you go back and look at the 1920 Red Wings. There was no way this team was going to be anywhere near there. Um, and that's what you sort of would have needed if you were to really go all in on I want the number one pick um, because you would, even with the change in lottery odds, you had to be the worst team because now you can't at least finish any worse than third yep. and you give yourself the best chance at first that we've had since the McDavid lottery. But that's a tall odd. You're talking about 22 fewer points right now to be where Columbus is. Yeah. And if you do that, you know, I don't know how exactly how old Dylan Larkin was when Steve Eisman got here, but I want to say he was 22. You are basically condemning Moritz Sider to the Dylan Larkin experience from that point on, right? And I know that's a harsh way to put it, but like, I'm not saying Dylan Larkin's got a bad life. He makes a great living. He's a great player, all that stuff. But it's, it was a, it was very clear what a tough road those last four years and, you know, now plus kind of have, have been on Dylan Larkin. Um, I don't know that you want to ask another franchise pillar to do that again, you know? Dylan Larkin's $8.7 million put him, puts him firmly in the middle class, says Max Goldman. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something that Steve Eisman said. Uh, he, he said you know, it wasn't just this trade deadline. He said that ad nauseum, that losing really hurts those players. And I think Dylan Larkin, we, we call it the Dylan Larkin experience. And I think you're right for that, Max. That's a success story, though. How many yes. players who who have a ton of talent would have thrived and maybe you know turned out into much better players or panned out into NHL regulars if the Red Wings were good for the last six years? Like there, there are casualties of that that you don't see just because of confirmation and survivorship bias. So uh, I, I fully understand Eisman's point there. Uh, to further what you you guys are talking about, Eisman said that he felt to really compete with the bottom of the NHL, he would have had to have dealt not just. Uh, Bertuzzi and others, it would have had to have been Larkin too. Yeah. Uh, and then think about Huso. Like, okay, they don't go and uh, pick up Huso. Like, then you're rolling with, let's say, hypothetically, Ned and Helberg all year. Like, you are then providing a situation where not only do Cider uh, and Raymond and, you know, let's say Wallman have no one else, they, they're going to get ISOed. They are going to get focused on with the team's toughest matchups all year. Does uh, Mo Cider bounce back from the rough start he had to the start to the season? Does Lucas Raymond have any modicum of success this year when the team uh, opposing team's game plan on offense is just eliminate all of his time and space? This would have been a really, really tough year of hockey to watch. And then all that to say, they're still phenomenal players, and I don't see Detroit you know, dropping down to 27th where Arizona is right now. It's just hard. In agreeing with you guys, it's hard to see them get that low down in the standings. I did not want to watch another no. season like that. I don't know. I can't speak for everybody. I realize the big picture. I did not want to watch another season like that. Even these last 20 games are hard. Like it, this is a, such a, t- we were talking about it the other day. Like the tone sucks right now. It's, it is what it is. It's the nature of the business, but it's, 
the the departure from where they were pre Ottawa games is insane. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm as I'm as big picture math forward as you're gonna get in in the hockey space. And I texted you guys the feeling I had prior to the Ottawa games, and by the end of the week, that sucked. Imagine if we had to deal with that the entire season. I mean, that would have been absolutely miserable um, to go through another year like that. And and to to that point, I think there's two other discussion points that have been raised um, just in conversations been having online. One is, you know, if you were truly committed to Dylan Larkin being a piece here, are if you if you sell last summer, does he stay? Yeah, you know, right? Because didn't he have uh, Max? You can correct me on this. Didn't he have a full no trade or a um, ten team no, no trade, trade this year? Full full no trade that kicked in at the start of the league year. Yeah, was and so that could have sig- yeah. he could have significantly impacted. You know, he's like, hey, I'm not staying here, and I'm not going to make it easy on in terms of dictating where I go. Like, I'm I want to go to a contender, and all of a sudden now you have to sell him short uh, in in the middle of the year, or you end up with a scenario where the culture of the room doesn't get better, and all of a sudden, Cider and Raymond are not guys that can rebound from that in the way that Dylan has persevered through that. And so I think those are two other intangible, maybe unmeasurable aspects of this that you have to factor in when considering why Eisenman did what he did last offseason. Even if my big picture brain is going to say I disagree with the way he went about it, there is an aspect where you have to say there's a there, there is something to doing what he did to make sure that he doesn't completely lose this team. So with that all said, there are some now, you know, pretty prevalent and obvious questions that have to be answered for for the Red Wings. They're on the outside looking in with the whole Bedard, Michkov, Fantilli, Carlson situation. So let's not even give ourselves that headspace right now. Barring a miracle, the Red Wings aren't going to be drafting those guys. They're still going to get a couple really good key prospects, presuming they make the picks, but they have some decisions to make. You know, the foot was proverbially on the gas a little bit last summer. Uh, Eisman backed off at the trade deadline for the reasons that we discussed. What comes next? He has a team that wants to continue to improve. He has a massive gap at right D, and I am in terrible shape. I wiped out walking on the snow today, so I'm in, by no means ready to step in. Uh, and he has a wealth of picks over the next, uh, you know, 14 rounds of the NHL draft. Some of those insanely valuable. Yeah, well, I, I think for me, it, if you're going to say, you know, kind of pivot toward building around Cider and Raymond, I think you need to make both picks in this draft. Um especially given where they look like they're likely to be beyond that. I think you can talk about the idea of trading one for a player, but you guys can chime in here. If you disagree, this free agent class to me, I don't want to say repulsive, but like I am in, there's so little on this free agent market that gets me really fired up, you know, like a big, like there's, there's depth, right? Like I, I think you can find, you know, a, a right D if you need one and, you know, maybe a, a useful forward, but like there's, there's not a needle moving player, I guess is what I would say. There's not that big fish. You're not going to, you're not going to uh, go get the Artemi Panarin that, that the Rangers did a couple years ago, right? If you were going to do that, it was David Pasternak and he's off the market now. Um, or I guess Bo Horvat, right? Uh, to a lesser degree, like, but that just isn't out there anymore at forward. So I think you can find a right D, you know, Scott Mayfield's there who I like. Um, you know, if, if you're a Matt, if you're into Matt Dumba, um, that could be kind of a heronic replacement, depending on what kind of term it is. Damon Severson's probably going to be the big prize. Um, another guy who the Red Wings just saw a little bit of, Connor Clifton, who I think plays a bigger game than than his size, and, and he could be a fit um, on some kind of deal. 
Um, you know, those guys are out there. I, I think one of them will make sense for the Red Wings personally. But beyond that, man, it's just not an encouraging class for me. I don't know what you guys think. I mean, I, apologies to everybody who's a fan of Burger King, but I've just been given $50 to go spend at Burger King. Like, there's <laughs> not a whole lot of stuff to buy here in this office. I mean, the Wings have $31 million in cap space, have a lot of holes to fill. And outside of who you just named, there's not a single player that that really does anything for you besides being a stopgap. And so that's where the Wings are going to have to say, is this a situation where I want to promote internally? Do I want to maybe start the year a little younger than I would have hoped for? Maybe you are bringing Marco Casper over and not just starting him in Grand Rapids, but you're starting him, you know, third uh, third C uh, on the team. And you're bringing, you're starting the year knowing you're going to have Jonathan Bergeron and Elmer Soderblom and potentially you're giving shots to, to Simon Edmondson and Albert Johansson. And you're giving multiple young guys a shot early on because sure you could spend the money uh, this off season, but if you're not spending for short term and low dollars, then there's really not a whole lot to to spend your money on that's going to change the Red Wings outlook. Eisman said something interesting in his uh, post deadline availability. I'm not sure if you were the one actually who asked the question, Max, but uh, he outwardly said that he likes trading for players more than picks. Uh, and I, I'm not sure if he said specifically trading picks for players, but he really likes the certainty of players. You combine that with the context of he is trying to get better sooner when it makes sense. Like he's not delusional about it. He he says very specifically he can't just conjure a, a trade out of thin air. But with you know two picks in the first round this year, likely barring something terrible happening with the Islanders, three picks in the second round, and then potentially two picks in the twenty twenty four first round. Boston's may slide, and then another pick in the second. Are any of those packaged for players and other teams? And I'm not going to ask you to project who because there's you know infinite possibilities. But I think we he do that. That's fine. Like it, it's like we can talk. You know, I'll give the people what they want. Right, the candy. Like, but I, I get what you're saying. I, to me, if you're going to do it, it's with the Boston pick. I I don't think you're you're taking that chance with your own pick. Even though I think Boston could dip next year, I don't think it's going to be that big as long as Pasternak, Marchand, McAvoy, Lindholm you know, at all are, are healthy. I think Bergeron and Krejci could very well retire. That makes a difference, but I don't think it gets you to um, missing the playoffs necessarily. So no. Linus um, Olmark says no. Yes. Jeez, him too. Uh, the big one that I think has been out there recently is Nick Schmaltz. And as a guy who, you know, the, the salary is way higher than the cap hit. Here's my thing with Nick Schmaltz though, is that it's three more years. The cap number is fine, but it's three more years and he's 27. Like, what about anything that you've done in the last month suggested that that's the player you're going to trade a first round pick for? Even though he's a really good player. If you told me Clayton Keller, who's a lot younger, has more term, uh, sure, I'm all, I'm all in on that. But I don't know that Schmaltz does that for me. Um, I had someone else suggest a bunch in my mailbag the other day that, I, you know, some of them were good. Um, Pierre-Luc Dubois was in there and yeah, you'd love Pierre-Luc Dubois. He seems like, you know, inevitable for, for Montreal at this point, which is a problem for the Red Wings. It's another, you know, rebuilding team in their division who's going to have, you know, really good young talent. That one-two punch of Dubois and Suzuki is going to be no joke, uh, especially with some of the picks they have. But I, it's just like the, the RFA, we're going to kind of have to wait in, until the start of the offseason. I feel like until some of the names start leaking of guys who there's you know, contract uh, uncertainty with that, you know, basically the next Timo Meyer. And the next time there's a Timo Meyer available, that's the kind of guy I'm willing to use that Boston pick to go get. Yeah. And I think the key to that is identifying them early. 
Um, and going back to one of the original points we had is when teams, you know, want to sell in the offseason prior and guys who are going to be unrestricted free agents, potentially one smart thing that Eisman starts doing now is not who's going to be a free agent this offseason, but who's going to be a free agent next offseason. And who are teams that are potentially ripe to make changes? So one guy who's always going to be coming up and linked to Detroit, Elias Pettersson, right? His contract is up at the end of next year. What does Vancouver do? No one knows what Vancouver is doing. I have no earthly idea what direction they want to go in. Um, and they sort of seem like the team that at a moment's notice could flip a coin, change their mind, and all of a sudden sell. So are you constantly calling you know, Alvin and saying, hey, what do you think about Elias today? Is your opinion going to change tomorrow? I mean, he's a guy. Calgary's a team where they made a big shakeup this offseason in terms of moving Matthew Kachuk and bringing in a bunch of guys, and it hasn't really worked for them. Do they get to the point where they end up selling high? They've got a handful of guys, Tyler Toffoli, Elias Lindholm. You know, are those two guys that they end up deciding, uh, hey, I don't think they're going to be a part of the picture for us beyond 23-24. Maybe I consider moving them in the summer. So that's the type of player that I think if you're going to go down the route of a trade, go down the route where you get the guy for the year, you bring them in, you elevate your play for the next season immediately, and you offer so offer yourself the opportunity to to negotiate with them in season before anybody else really gets to it. So I think it's not necessarily waiting for the guy like the Timo Meyer to hit in the middle of the season. It's it's going a little bit earlier. Another guy even is Jake Gensel in Pittsburgh. What does Pittsburgh yeah. do? You know, he's a free agent after next season as well. So those are the guys that I would be looking at if you're really serious about trading a pick to add somebody. It's looking at next offseason. Well, Toronto, right, is is the perpetual team of intrigue, right? right? What happens a year from now in Toronto? Matthews Everyone's thinking Nylander. right now about the playoff series, but Matthews and Nylander both up. I don't see how you can keep both of them again. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the thing, you know, is are they willing to move one? Are they willing to move, you know, both? Like, where are you going here if you're Toronto? Because uh, you're, you're likely going to have to make a decision to your point, Max, that one's staying and one's going because you you're not going to be able to keep both. And for the one that's going, you're going to want to get something for them. What do you guys think of? And I know it's almost insane to think about because outside of being in division, it's a team that's in lockstep with them and in the rebuild. But what do you think about dealing with Ottawa and the Alex DeBrinket situation with his $9 million qualifying offer coming up? I know Ottawa's a little bit on the up and up, barring you know losing to Chicago at all recently. Uh, but will they want to lock into Brinkett? Will Brinkett want to stay? Is that a reasonable option and one that you would think would be worthwhile for the Red Wings? At that number, I mean, he certainly adds. Know. Yeah, but at nine million, no. But he adds the element that the Wings have been missing, which is finishing talent. Um, that's what they were hoping Jacob Rana would be. That's something they hoped that Philip Sedina and Anthony Mantha and Timu Polkin, and you go all the way back. These are all guys they've been hoping that could add that. So he he would, but at nine million, Brandon, yes, you don't have to give him his qualifying offer as the long term contract, but it's going to be hard to get him at much cheaper than that. The age is good though, right? Like he's, I think he's twenty five, going to be twenty six. I think you like that, um, and and that's a difference from some of the guys we were just talking about. You know, even I think Nylander is going to be twenty eight when he's a free mm-hmm. agent. So, you know, there's that. Um, but yeah, the, the number would be the key there for me. And I, I think, I think you could have a guy like that on your team whose, whose main thing is they just finish for you. But, and, and I think he's 
earned the respect to say he is definitely that guy. But I, I wouldn't want to pay him like he's a do-it-all, basically. I don't, I don't think – and I certainly wouldn't want to pay him more than you're paying Dylan Larkin, which is $8.7 million. You know, I don't know what the number is. For me, I think I'd really like it in the sevens. But I don't know if that's reasonable for, for him and what he's put on tape with two 40-goal seasons. Yeah, I, I just don't know that you're going to get him in that in that yeah. price range. And that's where it becomes a little tricky. So we talked about, you mentioned here, finishing talent, and and that's really important. I think the Red Wings are obviously really suffering there. That's been on display a lot this season uh, with how Jacob Verona's time in Detroit progressed. That was obviously a huge hit to what they thought was uh, their their talent, their finishing talent within their um, NHL roster. How does that question get answered? Is it through the draft? What does their pipeline look like in terms of providing answers to that? And is that your biggest kind of question mark in terms of, this is a major step that needs to happen for the rebuild to finish, to wrap up and for them to be competitive. I don't think it's a must have. Um, you know, you, you certainly have teams that can win without having elite finishers. Obviously the, the prototype for this has been Carolina, uh, you know, and granted have they want to stand the cup? No, but they've been consistently competitive and dominant for a really long time. They have a system that feeds into that with a lot of point shots and an aggressive forecheck and puck, puck pursuit style that works. Uh, and so so there are ways to win without having those elite finishers. But I think if you're going to get one, it's got to come through the draft because the guys that really are elite finishers don't tend to get moved all too often. I mean, the Brinkat is one that we talked about. Patrick Line is another one that we've talked about. Uh, but there's a lot of the other elite, elite finishers, at least off the top of my head here, I can't recall being moved all too frequently. Jacob Ron is a guy that was in a very small role in Washington relative to what people are hoping for. And so, yes, the numbers looked really good in the smaller sample. And so he may be another example. But the guys that are really at the elite playing big minutes, to me, they just don't get moved often. No, I agree with you. And I, I, I think you at some point, I mean, you have to score goals, but I think you have to kind of weigh, are you willing to put premium money toward doing it or are you going to try to do it the depth way and i don't you know maybe that's an evolving decision i don't know that you have to have an organizational philosophy on that necessarily but the guy the point being the guys who do it come up so rarely that like when a patrick line does are you willing to trade pierre luc dubois for him uh i mean there's certain circumstances around the dubois thing that you know enabled that but Columbus uh, made out much better in that, uh, sorry, much worse in that trade than than Winnipeg did. Even though Winnipeg is going to lose Pierre Luc Dubois, like I don't want Patrick Laine really, especially if it costs me Pierre Luc Dubois. So, to me, I think you're you're trying to find players who you think can score twenty to thirty goals, and it's ways you said than done. But I don't, I'm not necessarily willing to pay the premium for someone who's like a fifty goal scorer unless it's literally Austin Matthews, who I know is going to help me in every conceivable way. So let's talk big picture then. Uh, barring some kind of fantastical trade that happens over the offseason with where the Red Wings are at right now and knowing their organizational goal is to just kind of incrementally get better uh, and move towards the playoffs, what does their timeline look right now? Post-trade deadline, what does the timeline look to making the playoffs and being competitive? It's a good question. I think it all depends on on the summer, which is the cop-out, right? But it's like it, the Red Wings has presently constructed with you know, the expected promotions. Uh, maybe maybe you see Casper, maybe you see Mazer. You're going to get Rasmussen back. Maybe you see Edvinson. To me, are not a playoff team. But with the right additions, and if those if those progressions that I just talked about, if Simon Edvinson's ready to come in and um, 
played 19, 20 minutes a night of really good hockey and, and Marco Casper's ready to be a legit, you know, 35 ish point player who plays, gives you good minutes and is driving some, some, uh, transition play. Okay. I maybe, and, and you get the right free agent additions. Maybe. Yeah. But my guess is it's, it's not a playoff team next year. And for what feels like the third straight year, I'm saying they're still a year, a year away. And I'm starting to feel stupid for continuing to say that. <laughs> you know, I think an important point to bring up here, and it's one that uh, a couple of people have pointed out to me, it's not entirely in the Wings' hands. The Eastern Conference is ridiculous right now, and it's likely to be ridiculous for the next couple of years. I mean, Carolina's not going anywhere. New Jersey's on the up. Toronto, it all depends on how they handle Matthews and Nylander next year, but you know they're not a team that I see going away. The Rangers have a lot of young talent and have been able to piece together a really strong team. And they've got arguably the best goalie in the world behind them. Uh, you know, Tampa, we're all waiting for them to fall off. And here they are, 39 and 22 and 6, just cruising along again. And so you've already got maybe four or five teams that are going to be in playoff position pretty assuredly for the next three years. Boston, we have to see how they fall off and what ends up happening there. But currently they're on record pace. You know, Pittsburgh is likely to fall. The Islanders are likely to fall. Florida is likely to fall. But at the same time, You've got Ottawa, Buffalo, and Detroit that are all competing for that spot there. And so it it's not entirely in the Wings' hands. They have to do a lot. They have to do a lot, and they have to get some help if you're talking about this being a playoff team in the next two to three years because, frankly, it's just it's a loaded conference right now, and it's really hard to move up. And I don't, I don't know. That's why I don't think I would confidently say you're seeing this team in the playoffs next season or the year after. I think you're looking at about three years from now in terms of your game planning. Yeah, like here's a way we way to game this out. We do this in our group chat sometimes, like with with uh, like using a little armchair GM and saying how many points does this team get? Right. Let's take some of the biggest splashiest things we just described and what they could do in the next calendar year. You sign Damon Severson, who I think is the best right D on the market, uh, and you trade for William Nylander. With whatever that costs. Let's say it's a, a first round pick and a really good prospect and maybe even more than that. I don't know. He's a really good player. Uh, how many points does that team with, you know, depth additions elsewhere and, and just, but just kind of depth and promotions. How many points does that team get next year and then the year after? Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, it's probably a 90 point team at, at, at a ceiling. You know, and so I think still- it could be better than 90 though. I, I think I was going to come in 94. Yeah, I think it's right around there. You're right around the edge. <laughs> this team's probably going to be between 82 and 85. I think Nylander and Severson should get you to. Potentially, yeah. So, so bottom line, 90 to 94, 90 to 95, somewhere in that range. We just said the playoff cutoff is usually 95 to 96, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so you're talking about this team being Fringe. ninth, eighth in the East, and you've just made all of those moves and potentially mortgaged your ability to add a little bit more by, you know, trading draft picks for, for Nylander. And so. It's tough. It's really tough. Hundred percent. So it's it's just it's there's no shortcut, and I I know that I know that I'm sick of hearing that. I'll say that I'm sick of hearing it. Just even more so than I am of saying it because it's kind of boring to, to write. And uh, I, I would like for there to be uh, splashy things that that meaningfully change what kind of stories I'm writing. You know, I'm, I'm I am I wrote the thing you know earlier this week that was kind of. Um, what the rest of the season means to the Red Wings. And I, I told someone up in the press box, like, 
they're like, Oh, what are you going to write? And I was saying this and I was like, I feel, but I feel like I've written this 20 times. And they were like, well, you'll find a way to put some new spin on it. And it's like, I, I will, but like, I love a new, new story to tell here, you know, and that's kind of where I'm at is, uh, you know, I, I don't know that it's impatience or what, but it's just, it's almost, uh, it's not boredom, but it, it's just like, man, there has to be some, some other element the, the, the few weeks of covering that playoff race, whether how much of it was in our heads or wasn't was, uh, a thrill. And whenever that time comes, I, I think it's going to be a thrill, um, and the sooner it happens, I think the better for almost everybody involved. Every single one of us was um, uh, skeptical of that playoff push, and every single one of us flipped as it progressed, and we all saw the kind of energy behind us. And it wasn't just yeah. like blind fandom hype. It was realizing what it does to a team in a market. Like, that. We you can scoff and you can say, oh, it's just all about money when Eisman talks about those things, but that was palpable. Like, that was... Well, that Tampa game, I mean... My just God. like and that was a 3-0 shutout loss it was one of the best hockey games i've ever attended like it was such a great energy that 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 fan base for most of that game as good as andre vasilevsky was was trying to will their team to beat a team that's been to the stanley cup final three straight times and it was it was an infectious energy even up in the press box which is the most sterile place right like this it's a no fan zone you could feel from down below what that energy was and and that is a cool feeling that i think you know is it uh whenever it returns like full time it it will be a, a really cool sight to see it's it's one that's been missed i mean you know again i i always come back everyone likes to to make make the fun that i'm i'm this analytical robot which i am to a certain extent but i'm out of my bed cheering at that <laughs> at that tampa game like i am yelling and screaming I don't do that for hockey games, but that was a playoff hockey game. And that that's the kind of feeling that, you know, when you when you get that back and it's been so many years, uh, I, I think probably the last time I really felt that way was 2013 uh, uh, against the Blackhawks in the playoffs, that second round, when the Wings had them on the ropes. Like that, that was that level because the Wings haven't really had a competitive playoff series since then. But that was that level of energy and excitement. And, and that's where I'd love to see this team go. And, you know, Max, earlier you said there are no shortcuts, and there really aren't. If you look at the teams ahead of them, why are the teams there? That uh, they're, they're because they hit their, their first draft picks. That's what it is. You have to hit in the first round. If you don't hit in the first round, you're not going anywhere. Boston's the last of the legacy teams that's up there. Otherwise, Tampa, a little bit. Yeah. Well, I guess they got Stamkos. I mean, Stamkos, Hedman, yeah, right? Yeah. They, you know, they're, they're supporting right? Vasilevsky, their first round picks. You know, New Jersey is doing that with Jack Hughes. Dawson Mercer's been terrific. You know, Toronto, obviously. The Rangers uh, have their first round picks and have been able to add, you know, key free agents. And then Ottawa, Buffalo are on the rise because of their first round picks. And that's what it's going to come down to is if you're going to out-compete those guys, You've got to outdraft those guys at the top of the draft if they're going to be there with you. And so that's why Raymond, Sider, Casper, Edvinson, they have to be that. And if they are not that, you are talking about a team that is many more years away. Well, we have uh, lots to look forward to with the draft, especially as we see where the Red Wings settle in. Um, if it is that 10th, then we'll have a draft lottery to <laughs> maybe uh, have like half a second of hope or interest in. But uh that's just an excuse to kind of get this this group together 
I'll let you go for now, though. Uh, folks, this has been Max Boltman of The Athletic Detroit, as well as Prashanth Iyer. Find Prashanth on Twitter at Iyer underscore Prashanth, Max at M underscore Boltman. I'm also going to link Max's most recent article. Uh, I cannot say enough. Not only does he deserve a championship beat to cover, <laughs> he deserves your subscription to The Athletic Detroit. It is worth the price of admission. Sign up through that link. Um, it is absolutely must read. It's the first thing I read in the morning and sometimes 1 a.m. when he grinds through and drops those articles for us. So uh, thank you both. Thank you both for uh, for jumping on and until next time. All right. That was our interview with uh, Max and Prashanth or better yet, uh, our Red Wings roundtable. Those are always fun. And as you can tell from that discussion, there is um, there's going to be a lot to kind of double back on and see where the Red Wings are at come the offseason. So always a good time having them on and, and we'll do so again soon. Uh, for now, let's jump into a, a prospect profile for this episode. And this is a divisive player, uh, one who's going to be in the headlines quite a bit as we approach the NHL draft. And yeah, he's uh, he's pretty all over the board, almost literally like there are I've seen him as high as top 10 and I've seen him as low as the 40s or 50s in people's rankings. And I don't agree with the justification for all, but I understand why these folks have them there. So without further ado, let's talk about this uh, highly skilled but questionably skating Andrew Crystal uh, out of Kelowna in the WHL. Brad, take us away. Man, this is this is going to be a fun one. Um, so I have a, a huge appreciation for smart skilled small hockey players and everybody who's been listening to this podcast for seven eight years they know and you're two of those things exactly um thank you <laughs> don't <laughs> tell that? me don't tell me what you do yeah. you uh, can choose honestly <laughs> <laughs> um yeah andrew crystal fits that bill he is obviously undersized has a wicked shot we got to start there because he can for a guy his size he can absolutely rip it with power and accuracy um, unbelievable hands when he has that puck, he, he can do things with it that very few in junior hockey can, uh, very cerebral, smart player, uh, can play every, uh, corner of the offensive zone, uh, smartly and effectively will play the middle, will play the outside, can take the shot, can make the pass again. When the puck on his is on his stick, everything's possible. He's, he's one of those, he has that level of skill, um, especially at the junior level. He can he can really, truly make things happy happen out there. Everything about his hands, shot, and hockey IQ screams he should be pushing the top four guys in this draft. It's All those skills are legitimately that good. As Ryan alluded to, he's ranked all the way down in the low second round in, in some instances. The consensus seems to be average out around middle first round, which might become very relevant for Detroit. Um, and a lot of people are wondering, Hey, why is a guy who's this skilled, not a consensus top 10 pick? Oh my God. His skating sucks. It's so bad. I can't even sugarcoat it. It is terrible. Evan can skate better than this guy. I think. Of course I can. Are you a good skater? Would you call yourself a good skater? When I played hockey more than once a week, I, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Back in the day. Junior aged Evan back in his new Hamburg days, probably legitimately was a better skater than Andrew Crystal. And, uh. It's it's tough because you talk about skills that translate to the NHL. Andrew Crystal's hockey IQ, hands, and shot, no doubt, hundred percent translate to the NHL. It might not matter. His skating is that bad. He's the Homer Simpson meme, where he's pulled all his fat to the back. <laughs> 
it's it's almost disappointing, right? Like you're looking at this and saying, where is the junior, like where is the development uh, structure around a player of his skill level? Where have they failed where they haven't already drilled this or, or you know, kind of nipped this in the bud? Because they you can see his talent coming from a mile away. I'm sure he's been talented his entire career growing up. And they would have done him a lot of favors in this upcoming draft if they were able to get this, you know, get this fixed or at least up to a below average level because that's serviceable. You're will- like, there are plenty of phenomenal NHL players who don't skate well. You don't need to be a high end skater to be the uh, a top player in this league, but it is concerningly bad. And it asks you quite it makes you ask questions of is they have they tried to kind of uh, get his skating up to form and he just hasn't been able to? Has he just lacked the, the proper development structure around him? That's what the combine is for and interviews are for and, and et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it is. It feels like like we're hammering on this guy, but it is notably bad. And there's different types of skating, and we've talked about this in ter- with other prospects in terms of strengths and weaknesses. Whereas, like a Lucas Raymond, top end speed, not great, edge work, fantastic. And obviously, Andrew Crystal's um, top end speed is bad. But you could go, okay, well, he could be good on his edges, and that will help him. Uh, he's not. And you go, okay, well, maybe the mechanics are there so that there, there's a baseline to work with that he can improve off of. No, there isn't. It looks like he has hip dysplasia or something when he skates. I don't know how to phrase it. It's Ryan's right. Something went terribly wrong in his development, or he has some sort of anatomical problem. It's noticeably awkward. Now, not to say it couldn't improve, but like Andrew Crystal dramatically improving his skating brings him up to below NHL average. It's, man, I I hate how bad his skating is because I love every other part of his game so much. Yeah, it's frustrating. That's the right word. It is truly frustrating. He is like he, I think you're right to say he's pushing the top four if the skating doesn't matter. And this is hockey, so it does. Uh, but the what he's able to do in the offensive zone and the like, how wicked his shot is, and and the way he's kind of able to control the puck in tight spaces, the way he's able to see the ice, like he is going to be like, if he makes the NHL, like there are going, he's going to have flashes in the offensive zone, like on the power play where you're going to be like, Whoa, crystal makes it or crystal. I always want to say crystal where crystal makes a difference on a given play, but over the course of a game in the course of a season, it's not going to be, you know, he's not going to be changing the game with the skating, how it is right now. And yeah. His, his projection in the NHL, his best case scenario. I, I don't know what to call it. Late late career Thomas Vanek where you you hide him at five on five as best you can, but he could be an absolute weapon on the power play. And I do think even with his skating, with how good his other tools are, Andrew Crystal at the NHL level on a power play could be very, very effective. I can see that because it's a very slow moving stationary cerebral part of the game. That's his strength. So if you tell me Andrew Crystal makes the NHL one day and he's putting up 50, 60 points, I'm not shocked. I would bet over half of those are going to be on the power play though. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't think he has the skating to keep up in a top six role. Uh, obviously the style of game he has isn't suited for a checking line. So you got to hope that you have one of those hybrid third lines. You pair him with someone who can help him hide that deficiency. You put him with uh, Joe Valeno, someone who can really skate and, and you hope that he can get his skating to a point where he can tread water at five on five. And then once he gets to the offensive zone, make some things happen. Um, and then obviously power play gets out there. You throw him out power play one and, and you know, 
hope he has a real significant impact in that area. He's all like the, the part of this that's that kind of makes it a problem because I'm sure folks are listening and saying, okay, it's his skating, but just, you know, there's some really good power skating coaches who made, you know, uh, the worst of skaters viable in the NHL. He's also small. Like you can be small and worth a high pick. Like Michkov is tiny. Uh, and you can be a bad skater and work worth a high pick if you have the frame to to build around it. But what's he list? What is he like five nine, five nine one seventy something like that? Like there's enough there where mid to late first round beyond that, that's a pro. That's one hell of a project. Like it, it almost feels unfair to Crystal to say that would be a project pick because he, with the, that amount of talent, if you're able to kind of unlock that and and turn him into an everyday NHLer, that could be a massive impact player. But with a top 10-ish pick with what the Red Wings are going to have, uh, that to me is like, I don't know that you're assuming that you should assume that much much risk that early on. The The league continues to get faster and quicker every single year. I don't see how you make a massive impact at the NHL level without being a better skater than your peers right now because the gap only gets bigger as you move up in the the ability levels like to the AHL to the NHL like if you're behind now like it's a mountain to catch up and you know yeah clearly he's an extremely gifted hockey player i think that much is obvious so you know there's something in him that maybe he could turn that around but he's <laughs> it's like rocky it's 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 round 6 right now his face looks like mashed potatoes <laughs> he's got to <laughs> mount a huge comeback He's, you're exactly right. And it's really hard to do that because now is the time when the best of the best are being equipped with even better kind of development resources. You know, uh, uh, like the, the NHL is not a development league. Like you're a big boy. You, you come to work, you put your hard hat on and you go out there. Like they, maybe at the AHL level, you can do that. But if you have no speed and you're small at the NHL level, you're going to get run over. That's the thing. Like you're, you might be saying like, okay, but if he can score, that like that's a guy like they're gonna collapse on his space. Oh yeah, they're gonna take away any opportunity he feels that he has to to handle the puck. And you know he's super impressive and he can do magical things with the puck in tight. But the defending in junior leagues isn't always the best indication of what you're gonna no. be able to do at the pro level. So there's also a concern like if you're small and you can't skate, and then you know your your time and space goes away when you move up to the pros. Well, then you're small, you can't skate, and your your best attribute, which is your scoring, has diminished and then it's like what did i just spend you know whatever kind of pick for if this was a thin draft and it's like okay like we can work with this guy then that's one thing but with the amount of talent that's in this draft i think you know it might be better for the red wings to go with a with somebody else we've heard i've heard this saying a lot in drafts before about these types of picks He's a good pick to make if you have two first round picks. Hmm, I was just going to ask that. Like the Detroit's with that with the way the Islanders are going, Detroit could very well have an opportunity here to take him in a, a later first round. Yeah, depending where that pick ends up, let's say twenty five for argument's sake, that's probably around where you're you're starting to gamble on some guys because just the the surefire talented players are already long gone. So if the Red Wings are like, okay, yeah, listen, we know he's never going to be anything more than a specialist, but our power play sucks. And uh, it doesn't look like we have a solution for that coming through the system either. Maybe, maybe we can take the risk on it if they already have like an Oliver Moore from the draft or, or whoever. 
I could I could see that justification. I could absolutely ju- see that. It'll just be hard to not take Oliver Bonk just for his name. That Radic Bonk's legacy needs to live on in the NHL, and and that's like uh, that's around the range. Listen, I don't ever advocate for helping a division rival out, but he's got to get drafted by Ottawa. He's, he, he has, has to. to. Yeah, yeah. All right. Anyhow, um, maybe a bit tough, and so if you disagree. Uh, I think the conversation on Crystal is going to be ongoing. Uh, I'm still like, I, I've not settled in one spot on him just right now. It's when I think about where the Detroit's pick is probably close to that top 10. It's not one that screams. Yeah, let's do this to me. Uh, but let us know what you think. And that's our uh, initial prospect profile on Andrew Crystal. Uh, very quickly here, uh, the GM meetings wrapped up and there doesn't seem to be too much in terms of rapid change or, or uh, anything notable coming out of there. Uh, the only thing is, with the way escrow has gone, the league has said, um, you know, the cap is only going to go up $1 million with where the finances are right now. Gary Bettman has left the door open for the NHLPA to uh, negotiate that though. Like they can negotiate in advance on future increases if they want. And let's call this for what it is. This is a negotiating tactic from the league. And it is an especially interesting one because uh, Marty Walsh is coming in as the new head of the NHLPA, and this is his first test. And Gary Bettman knows that, and you know, Marty Walsh will know that. And this is nothing more than a, uh, a it, it's it's real. Like they can negotiate, but it's a test. Uh, it, it's Bettman is feeling out his opponent. He's seeing where the weak spots are. He's putting a, a you know something out there that's presented as a life raft, but. Don't be afraid or don't be surprised if it gets snatched away or if the negotiation or the ask in return for an advance on increasing the cap is uh, something that is way more beneficial to the league than it is to the player, so to speak. So curious to see where that one goes. If the cap stays low, uh, that is just one more year of advantage in my mind that the Red Wings potentially have in practice. We'll see. But um, for a team with cap space, then they could potentially do something with that. But remains to be seen. And the sale of the Ottawa Senators uh, is ongoing. It seems like there are a healthy number of bids, at least four up to like, I don't know, was it 10 or so? And uh, there are rumors of that team getting bids north of $900 million, which is great if you're an owner in the NHL. You know, Ottawa is not exactly, there's, they're not a perennial playoff team right now. And though I think that's a really, really strong hockey market, it's not like one of the marquee hockey markets. You're not talking about the Rangers. You're not talking about, uh, you know, the Blackhawks, which I know people might be loath to admit, but with how much they've succeeded recently, maybe not so much in recent years. Uh, for the Senators to go for $900 million, that means a lot of owners' valuations internally of their team uh, has gone up and you might see owners start to consider selling. So I wouldn't be surprised if this turns into a domino effect. Well, we can always get inside info. Uh, Evan, what did you bid? $5, Bob. But they, they would actually give it to you because of the political sway that you have. That's right. Me and Ryan Reynolds are actually quite close friends. You would be. I, honestly, you would be. You could pass off his brothers. You think he Thank could? Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Wow. He looks like great, every celebrity. What a great day. <laughs> yeah. What uh, what Brad and I didn't tell you is that the whole Ides of March theme today is uh, it manifested in us cutting your brakes while your car's mm. in the driveway. So that actually solves quite a few problems for me, <laughs> for, for us too. <laughs> we might be able to start the podcast sometime in the that's summer. That's right. That's right. Uh, anyhow, I don't know that that's going to have any effect on anything appreciable for Detroit. Um, but also, if you're looking at expansion, 
if the senators sell for $900 million, that is really good cause for the league to raise that expansion fee. And if you're looking at an expansion fee of a billion dollars or more, then that is more motivation for the league to expand more in the future. So despite the fact that they're kind of uh, tampering or sorry, tempering those conversations now, I'm still very much a believer of where there's smoke, there's fire, even if the fire is very small. All right, uh, why don't we jump into overtime here? Uh, overtime on this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast is proudly brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Again, patreon.com slash podcast. if you want to support the show. Uh, gets you access to our Discord, our Patreon-exclusive overtime episodes, and uh, all of our excellent giveaways. You're automatically entered. Uh, we'll start with some questions here uh, once they load up for me. Uh, this one from Connor Dukes, who says, who's going to wear the A's for the wings next season? Uh, David Perron and Ben Schrott. Cop will cycle in. Probably. I'm sure they'll cycle cider in as, you know, injuries and stuff dictates. That's going to be it. Yep. Hockey Town Racing Academy says, would you rather have Connor Bedard or both Fantilli and Michkov? Evan, you answer this first. Wow. That is hard. I'll go with uh, option B. Yeah, I think you got to take both of those guys, right? Yeah, yeah, I'd go Fantilli and Michkov. Yeah, the problem with the NHL is that you can't just leave your stars on the ice for 90% of the game like you can in some other sports. So we'll take the volume approach here. I, I question that. Connor McDavid looks like he was built in a lab. I think they just I think they just pull him off for half the game. So it like the illusion is That's kept right. up. So we don't we don't catch on to what they're actually doing. I I know this is unfair to Oilers fans, and I know this isn't. Like, I'm not saying this as in I'm upset about it. I'm just saying this. I'm, I'm, I think I'm stating a fact. And I might have said it on the podcast before. I think the NHL could be making tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars more if uh, uh, Connor McDavid played in, in Detroit a, in a primetime East Coast market. And, and it's not it's not a slight on Edmonton. I'm just talking about the time of day or night that he plays. So many people don't get to watch his games and watching him. There has genuinely never once been a player in NHL history as talented or as effective as him, period. I know that, and that's not like, I'm not comparing like uh, you scale for eras, like unfair to those who came before him as the game gets better over time, but he's genuinely a marvel of the sport. Imagine if he played in for the Rangers, like basically one of the, if not the biggest team in the NHL. I'm, I'm okay. I'm going to be sick saying this. But if he played for the Leafs, that would, I, yeah, that makes me sick. But yes, you're right. The bottom feeders in the league would genuinely like that because of how much money they would make because of uh, a salary or revenue redistribution. Arizona could afford to put their arena on the moon. (laughs) (laughs) Armstrong listening to that. Hey, how do you get that idea? (laughs) That's insider info. (laughs) What's the land tax up there? Much cheaper. Yeah. Arizona's getting expensive as, uh, as Evan told us. Yeah. But no, McDavid is an absolute freak. And I think if anyone wants to enjoy the game more and, and doesn't necessarily have more Red Wings hockey to watch, stay up for an Oilers game. He's unreal. John Schultz says, Greeting, gentle, greetings, gentlemen. It's been a minute. First, for some reason, this trade deadline hurt more than all the others. I think in my head, I thought Bertuzzi and Ronick were going to be part of the group getting us back to the promised land. And I was really hoping Verona was going to turn it around. Come back and light it up. I know the returns were good, but the news was an absolute gut gut punch in our household. The chase on net front revelation got me thinking about Rasmussen, which then led me thinking about Zadina. What is it about our team's ability to completely sewer the very skills we drafted prospects for? 
Zadina can't hit the broad side of a barn and Rasmussen has never been a, a net front threat. What gives? If I knew that, I'd probably have a very prominent front office job somewhere in the NHL. I'll say for there, there are different cases. First of all, everyone thought Zadina would be a shooter. I think a lot of people questioned the Rasmussen net front thing. I think he was more just pigeonholed because of his size. Well, Rasmussen is a good case study in was he actually good at that or did he just physically dominate junior players? Uh, part of it, like the Rasmussen, what hurt him in the NHL was he tried to do what he did in junior, which he can get away with because of his physical dominance and that he could essentially skill his way into goals. And that just didn't work at the NHL. And he got 10 times better when he stopped trying to be a player he couldn't be at the pro level. So I think you're right, Brad. Also, for both Rasmussen and Zadina, I just think that the Red Wings sucking during important years of their development, it's hard to overcome that. I think Raymond and Sider are exceptions, not the rules. And it, it's easy to lose sight of that. Like, sucking for this long hurts players. Like I said before in, in the roundtable, how many players uh, are just not around anymore and had the potential to be because they didn't play in really positive environments? It's it's just the way things go, and I think that applies to every team. But yeah, for guys who are you know calling boomer bust like that, which isn't I guess what Rasmussen is, I'm sure that had a big big part of it as well. Uh oh, and a little note here from John says on a happier note, Noah and I are off to Denver in a couple of weeks for the USA Hockey Bantam National Championship. We're not going to be able to make the meetup unfortunately, but we're still looking forward to a Winged Wheel Podcast pickup game at some future date. We hope that's still under consideration. Yes. Uh, absolutely. We're hoping next year is when it happens. Um, just as these events become a little bit easier to plan, then we can start to, to look at that. So winged wheel podcast day slash night on the, on April 8th is, uh, just because of the time changes here kind of, uh, uh, change things up on us, but we are still planning to do that. All right. Uh, this one from Reed Matthews says hypothetical question. If the Oilers don't make it back to the conference finals and actually take a step backwards, Say in losing in the first round, would there be any way that the wings could trade for either Drysaddle or Nuge? And which one would you love to see in a winged wheel? Uh, no, and yes, <laughs> I would love to see either of them in the winged wheel. Yeah. Drysaddle or Nugent Hopkins just extended for a long time. Drysaddle has two more years after this one. He has a limited no trade um, that kicked in this year, and he would all be one of the most expensive players in the league to trade for. Period. Oh yeah. Every every prospect you like, they're gone in that trade. He makes eight and a half million dollars for two more seasons, and that is legitimately a bargain. I'm not kid. I don't mean like a bargain by like five hundred grand. I mean like by millions and millions a year on the cap. When that deal was signed, I went, "Oh my god, eight and a half! That's unreal." Which is kind of surprising considering the Oilers' management in the past. But hey, uh, okay. One more here from Sean Trainer, who says, with the talk of expansion cities lately, I want to throw in another idea. Portland, Oregon. Just moved to Central Oregon, and the amount of hockey here has really surprised me. In six weeks, I've met Dallas, San Jose, uh, Kings, Vegas, and of course, Kraken fans, and many of them are diehard fans. Plus, there's tons of casual fans of the sport, too. I really think a Portland team could be a good time out here. Keep up the good work, boys, and thanks for keeping this out of town or up to date on everything Red Wings. Uh, I've heard Portland is sweet. They have a, their name is pops up in pretty much every kind of like new market conversation. And before the Kraken, before Seattle won that expansion, Portland's name was in that, in that mix, I believe. That'd be a pretty sweet rivalry. 
Yes. The, the, I don't know enough about Portland as a city to give an opinion, but a Portland-Seattle rivalry would be intense. Yeah. That'd be fun. That's it. There's more, honestly more cities that could potentially host teams than there are teams where, uh, than there are, you know, spots in the NHL. And again, this is like callous to say because you don't want a fan base to ever lose their team. But whenever you see a team like really just not working in a given city, you're like, why when there are a dozen more Seattles and Vegases in this league? It, I have no idea. It boggles my mind every day when we talk about Arizona. All right, folks, uh, we're going to wrap up this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast. We're going to be back with you on Sunday. Uh, we'd like to thank all of you for tuning in. Uh, we'd like to thank our good friends, Max and Prashanth, for joining uh, us for our Red Wings Roundtable. Uh, and, of course, to all of our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash Podcast. If you do want to support the show, it means a lot to us. Again, some exciting news coming soon and more details on Winged Wheel Podcast Day slash night at the LCA, uh, are, uh, those are coming out shortly. We'd like to thank all of our listeners, new and old, and our name-level supporters on Patreon. Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Akefer, Bertuzzi is straight up missing, Nick Perks, Icon, uh, we are G-Long, the greatest team of all, Glenn Brabham, Aiden White, Jordan Bernaski, Keenan O'Donoghue, Yanni Burgers, Meals on Wheels, Matthew M. Rice, Croner's Left Knee, Babe Landeskog, Burt Baconator, uh, Carl Brutanen and Aluski, Chimmy, Chris P, Citizen High Five, Connor Scovey, Coyote Season Tickets and Tempe, Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek Enstam, Detroit Rob, DJ Denton, Give Blood Fight Probert, Hassam Al Qasem, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Joseph Barry, Kaylin Wood, Kevin James, King Tone, uh, Las Ensaladas Picantes, Marcus, Massive Wong, Evan Longsaber, Matt McKay, Michael Edland, Nicholas Fritz, Philip Lindsay, who's a brand new name level sponsor. Welcome, Philip, uh, to the Dub Dub Club. R.A. Scott Martin, send it Seawolf. That's what I appreciate about you. Username, Walman's Elite Dancing D. Why do you always do this to me, Brad? General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army. Sam Bankson, number one Rob, the big hog hag and the Detroit Red Guys fan. A.A. Ron, Adam Gowitska, Adam Rose, Antonio Gracias, Brad Simmons, Brian Vasha, C.J. Wilkinson, Connor Leighton, Corey Prita, Darren Fick, Flo T-Cast, Forever and Always Bertuzzi's Lost Tooth, Frank Stanley, uh, who I believe is a new name level sponsor, George's Biggest Fan, Grand Rapids Hockey Guy, Griffey Boy, James Laporte, Jeremiah Dobo, J.M. Rhapsody, John Evans, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Lieutenant Matt S. of the Cheesebag Army, Linda Hall, Marco Casper, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, Norris Sider, new name level sponsor, Noted Philip Zadina Whisperer, Ben Barron, Oophelia, Reed, Steven, Tatarsas, The Hodag, Z, and finally my favorite patron, Matt Keeler. Yes, Matt, I outed you on how you got your name right out last. I'm sure there's a tidal wave of those to come. Uh, also, Jordan Bernaski is a new name of a sponsor as well as Bert Baconator. So thank you all so very much, and we'll talk to you someday. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.